Well, it's a long paper today because I'm longing to get out of hell, to be honest, and start next week on purgatory with Purgatorio. And um, Cantos 18 to the end, 34, are what we're going to deal with in one huge, massive push to get to the end. But the, the first heading I've got on the paper is Gorion, and you have to go back to Canto 17, the beginning and end of that canto, to get the imagery and significance of Gorion. So when I start talking about Gorion, really you've got to look back at Canto. What is this gaudy monster which rises from the depths of Maliborgi and at the same time seems to be reasonably tame, quite in contrast to the other fiendish shapes of hell? Surely Dante intends us to interpret his imagery. In classical myth, Geryon was one of the monsters killed by Hercules. He killed him by lifting him off from the earth. And when Geryon was not on the earth, he could, in contact with the earth, Hercules could um, um, overcome him. He is often represented in his classical imagery as in human form with three heads. And the labors of Hercules were interpreted within the Christian tradition as symbols of stations on the way to the inner life which have to be overcome and passed through if the soul was to progress. Just an aside there, if you've ever been to the Teatro Olimpico in Vicenza, designed by um, Palladio but built and finished by Scamozzi after Palladio's death, you'll see that the 14 labours of Hercules are around as a frieze right around the top of the theatre. And um, these 14 um, labours of Hercules were regarded as essential stations or degrees of initiation which one must go through. Gorion for Dante stands for the image of fraud. In contrast to his classical sources, he has visualized the monsters being a compound of three natures, human, bestial, and reptilian. The form is colei che tutto il mondo appuzza, him that pollutes the whole wide world, 17 verse 3. The face is human, Era faccia d'om giusto. His face was a just man's. Line 10 of 17. The face looks at one with mild benignity, but the body is bestial with claws, and at the rear there is a quivering poisonous tail. Dante's Gorion recalls more the monsters seen by St. John the Divine in his visions than the Gorion of classical myth. What a superb image of fraud. Furthermore, Gorion has wings. He can fly here and there, just as fraud may find its way so easily into relationships. 
a smiling, apparently kind face, beguiling one into decisions that one will in time regret. Oh yes, fraud is bestial and poisonous. It cannot be excused. We have all met Gurion, and Dante is saying that we must know him in our own self-seeking selves before we may pass on in order to unmask fraud at large. Remember, in order to draw Gurion up from the depths, he had first to cast away the girdle with which he had once hoped to catch the tame, at catch and tame, the leopard of incontinence. In so doing, he acknowledged his own failure and fraud. And all that business of preparing a face for the faces that one meets. Garayan is therefore a sincere recognition of the fraud that would potentially reside in our own hearts. In order to descend the great barrier with its waterfall down to lower hell, to the Kivitas Diaboli, Dante first has to gain insight into the subtle permutations of fraud. He must learn from his guide the good of the intellect. The good companions now turn their backs on the circles of violence, mount the ghastly, beastly body, hang on tight, and Gurion complacently flies off the rocky edge and takes the poets downwards to the Malebolge. Next little heading is the Malebolge. The word means evil ditches or trenches. One has to imagine hell's funneling abyss deeply becoming ever more claustrophobic, thus closing in on the cursed inhabitants. Over the ditches are rock formations rather like the ribs of an umbrella, and these form bridges. The poets are able to walk along these and peer over at the damned beneath. All is well until they reach the sixth ditch, that of the hypocrites, when the bridge is broken. It was damaged at the harrowing of hell. And remember, this is taking place, Dante's descent is taking place on the eve of Holy Saturday, 1300. Dorothy says it's correct. What we are witnessing as the poets pass on downwards through the horror of the Malebolge is the city of the world in a state of progressive disintegration due to the breakdown of personal relationships. To know Dante right implies that we too must acknowledge our own contact and compromises with the prince of this world's fraudulent and often malicious city. If we just view the inferno as a, spect as a spectacle, without knowing where we too have passed by, we will fail to know the Commedia's genius. I quote from Dorothy Sayers' excellent notes.
sexuality, ecclesiastical and civil office, language, ownership, counsel, authority, psychic influence and material independence. All the media of the community's exchange are perverted and falsified till nothing remains but the descent into the final abyss where faith and trust are wholly and forever extinguished. There are ten Maliborgi. Their number is a sort of mockery of the Ten Commandments. For example, to become a pimp or to practice the art of seduction is to deny the very image we are created in, the deep mystery of God, and that is bluntly the vocation to love and having respectful relationships, the knowing of the heart. To flatter is to make others idolize themselves, to practice simonry, is to portray the very idea of the Sabbath, and so on. Note that Dante teaches that the way into this fraudulent city is through the misuse of sexual attraction. Why? I believe his argument would run something like this. Our charisma, our power of attraction, our sensuality, all these have the power to trap others in, a we in webs of illusion. Furthermore, these create a magic potency capable of persuasion. This powerful psychic persuasive in energy is hallowed when focused in God, but when taken to our souls it is destructive, not only for others but for ourselves, for we too become trapped. The magia, the magic, turns in on ourselves. Um, if you want to read uh, a wonderful um, little short text with profound insight into this concept of magic, um, Jakob Burma, the Lutheran mystic, uh, wrote um, a fundamental statement concerning the earthly and heavenly mystery in 1620 and you'll, you'll find a remarkable um, insight into magia, of course expressed in Burma's diffi difficult language, but I recommend it to you. It is certainly the teaching that, that Dante had. We become victims of the desire to live what we falsely perceive to be a heightened way of life. We crave for stimulus, intoxication, and the fine point of the soul is quickly and imperceptibly lost, and we are caught in the storm's vortex. La bufera infernal che mai non resta, mena gli spiriti con la sua rapina. Voltando, percotendo, li molesta. Canto 5, <coughs> lines 31 to 33. <coughs> the infernal storm that never rests takes the spirits 
in in its in its draft, as it were, and blows them wherever he wishes. It wishes. Dante's argument as to why the misuse of our sexuality opens before us the realm of fraud would continue with the premise that beauty is a divine attribute. Therefore, beauty for, for us should be an, an epiphany, a showing forth of the divine. To see beauty in others is to see the radiance of the divine image in which we were, are created. <clears throat> Even the light through which we are called to be transfigured, transhumanized, as Dante terms it in the Paradiso. The more we become receptive to beauty, the more we see Christ in others. To see Beatrice is to see an epiphany of God. The divine reveals himself in the glistening prism full of magical beauty of all that is around us, and it is if we could and it is if we could only apprehend it truly all about us, here and now. In the tales of the early church fathers, we find holy men weeping when beholding the beauty of actresses and harlots. Abba Pambo said he wept for two reasons, the loss of a soul trapped in sensuality, and that he, a monk, was not so concerned to please God as women who spend so much time and energy to please men. Other fathers simply admire and rejoice in the beauty of women. Consider this tale. When Ephraim went to Edessa for the first time, he prayed to God that, he, that as he entered the town, he would meet someone who would discuss with him the problems in Holy Scripture. The first person he met coming straight towards him was a woman who was a prostitute. Ephraim was sad because he thought that God had not heard his prayer. For what would she know of Holy Scripture? How could she resolve his questions? But the woman came on, her eyes fixed upon him. He was astonished and said to her, but without impatience or anger, Why are you looking at me so intently? The woman answered with a reference to the story of Genesis, the creation of man and woman. It is natural that I should look at you. I was formed out of you. But as for you, you have no reason to look at me, for it was the earth from which you were formed, and it is on that your eyes ought to be fixed. We never know from whom we may learn, especially in moments of self-centeredness or pride. So, as we have seen, the way to Maliborgi's ditches, according to Dante, is through the fraudulent misuse of sexual attraction. It is an essential initiation in the ways of the world. Consider how the media relentlessly aims to persuade old and younger light <coughs> that this is the way, and if you're not on the merry-go-round, you're missing the whole point of life. 
the world of the arts, the stage, fashion, business, politics, even the flow of the streets, the give and take of the local pub, they all hum and buzz around this initiation, quotation marks. In the game, people are made objects and tools for others. True dialogue is banished for chat and pseudo-intellectual blathering. It is a game, and only the hard-hearted succeed, those without scruples. It takes time to learn how to use fraud to one's full advantage. A social mask has to be formed. Armour plating quite opposite to St. Patrick's breastplate has to be forged. Fraudulent thrive on success and what they believe others vainly think of them. The social image becomes an assiduously cultivated idol. Of course, fraud can be caught out. Then the fall of the mighty is socially enjoyed by all as the news of the day, and not least by Dante himself. But under this fraudulent attitude to life, there is the destruction of many lives, from abortions to suicides, from drugs to sexual perversion, from abusive cruelty to murder. Dante has a clear idea of who are the most important players in this social scene. Look at his ten ditches and their inhabitants. So far we've only mentioned the pimps and seducers, the flatterers and simoniacs, but there are also sorcerers, berators, that is those who make profit of, out of the trust placed in them by society. For example, town, district and county councils seem to harbour quite a few Marators in our time, <clears throat> hypocrites, thieves, councils of councillors of fraud, sowers of discord, and falsifiers. Let us then descend with Dante in his guide, ditch by ditch. The whole ambience suddenly becomes like Bosch's paintings: crude, truly repulsive, evil. If we had not purgatory and paradise to contradict such a view, we might say that the Commedia was the work of a twisted mind. In Canto 18, the pimps and seducers are ceaselessly whipped along by fiends, whilst the flatterers are plunged into a ditch of filth fit for a cesspit. Just as the seducers in life could not refrain from their acts of seduction, so in the afterlife they are now forced to continuously move on with backs and thighs smarting from mercilessly lashings of the whip. The flatterers wallow in the slop and filth they excreted on others through the abuse of language. Flattery forbids communication and dialogue. It isolates people in their own conceits. In Canto 19, the ditch of the Simoniacs is an episode dear to Dante's heart, for as we have previously noted, he saw the papacy's corruption as the main cause of Italy's miseries. Lines 
118 to 120 show Dante lamenting the so-called donation of Constantine in which the Emperor Constantine was alleged to have transferred to the papacy temporal sovereignty over Italy. The document has since been proved a forgery. Here it is worth remembering that falsifiers are plunged into the last, most constricted ditch of Balibology. If Dante had known that the donation had been a forgery, one can but imagine what torments he would have plunged the fraudulent conspirators into. To make commerce out of holy things, especially for political ends, from documents to indulgences, from ecclesiastical offices to sacred relics, from chalices to sacraments, is scandalous, unforgivable. Such acts were to be at the root of the discontent that led eventually to the Reformation and the tragic division of Western Europe. The Simoniacs are plunged headfirst down fiery wells, their legs still sticking out, waiting for the next damned soul to come along and to stuff into the well, pushing the previous soul just a little lower, headfirst into the flames. The light of what has been said is not surprising that Dante makes straight for a, a wellhead reserved for popes, guilty of simony. The imagery must be familiar to you due to William Blake's well-known illustration in the Tate. Dante addresses the soul of Pope Nicholas III. Um, just a little footnote on Pope Nicholas III. 1277 to 1280 was far more a political leader than a shepherd of his flock, intent on strengthening the independence of the Papal See and its lands. Dante consigned him to hell for nepotism and avarice. He mistake, Dante mistakes him for the soul of Boniface VIII, a singly unsympathetic character. Uh, another footnote, Jen Kelly, in his Dictionary of Popes, comments that he combined exceptional ability with arrogance and cruelty, insatiable acquisitiveness for his family, and insensible contempt for his fellow men. For his fellow men, feared and hated, he could not keep a friend. Boniface died in 1303, and the Commedia is ideally taking place in 1300 after which Dante received his memorable vision at the end of the Vita Nuova, though possibly this, <coughs> this part of the Divine Comedy may have been written after 1303, but Dante's writing it as if it took place in the year 1300. It will be remembered that Dante was quite likely a Franciscan tertiary, and Boniface persecuted the spirituals, the branch of St. Francis' followers who took his rule literally. For example, he cast Jacopone da Todi, the Franciscan poet and fool for Christ's sake, into prison, or into prison of the most miserable conditions, simply because Jacopone had denounced him.
Dante's profound dislike for Boniface could have come, among other reasons, for, from his deep sympathy for the Franciscan movement. On hearing out Nicholas, Dante bursts into a furious denouncing of, cor of corrupt popes, lines 88 to 133, likening them to the Johannine vision, um, Revelation 17, of the harlot fornicating with the kings of the earth, puttanejara con regi. The climax of Dante's outburst is the horror of the donation of Constantine. Virgil, the good of the intellect, fully approves of this emotional outburst, and I quote verses 118 to 125 in Dorothy Sayers' translation. While I thus chanted to him, such a sour rage bit him, or perhaps his conscience stirred. He writhed and jerked his feet with all his power. I think my guide approved of what he heard. I think so, since he patiently attended with a pleasant smile to each outspoken word. And after took me in both arms extended, and when he had clasped me to his breast, climbed back by the same road he had descended. You can see in Blake's illustration, Virgil and Dante clasping each other, in, just as it's described in the poem. Canto 20 contains the horrific imagery of the sorcerers with their bodies so twisted that the head look back, looks backwards to its backside. The feet too are turned backwards, so they have to stumble onwards in contradictory direction to that for the, natural, for the body. Dante weeps at the sight because the brutal contortion of the human body. The dignity of the image in which it was created has been lost, deformed by sin. He is, he is stressing the nature of sorcery and the magical arts with its sight twisted away from God to the self and to psychic powers. Cantos 21 and 22 are dedicated to the berators that is, those wretched souls who have misused the trust placed in them by the community for financial gain. Beratory seems to be one of the sins, as we've already indicated, which rots away especially in political parties and local government. Those of us who've had tarmac laid or had built wretched supermarkets on beautiful countryside will here take comfort. The purveyors of such disrespect for the beauty of nature don't go in unpunished in Dante's scheme of things. Peer down from the stony bridge with the poet to the Malibolgi below and see how those scandals where it has been clearly jobs for the boys and when money has greased palms and filled purses Look at them, the wretched souls. They are in a stream of boiling pitch. Pitch, tarmac. When I worked in High Hoban, which is polluted by countless cars all around one, I often thought of the earth trapped underneath the tarmac, concrete and brick, 
and wondered if it could be one day removed and whether fertility would once again return, enabling seeds to grow. Dorothy says, with her usual insight, notes that the dealings of such persons are in secret and that money sticks to their fingers, just as the defilement of the pitch now sticks to them. But that is not all. Clearly, Dante felt at this point in his poem the reader needed a little humour. How time servants have been despised across history. We are not alone with an orange uh, telephone mask going up all over the place next to domestic um, houses and so forth. A bunch here, a bunch of truly Boschian fiends are organised into a merry prank with the berators, jabbing them with forks and calling out insults that we too in this life would have liked to have voiced but for the fear of libel. Note how the devils are even divided against themselves as they poke and jab. They are like the incestuous world of berators in life. Get him, sack him, let him stew in his own juice. Oh, let me do the grabbing, that one's mine, and so on. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And remember here that Dante himself was accused of beratory. And this led to his exile. He has certainly unburdened some of his gall in these two cantos. The episode has been a comic interlude before the ever-increasing claustrophobia of horror upon horror. Canto 23 introduces us to the hypocrites weighed down with leaden cloaks making spiritual progress impossible. There can be no breathing of the spirit when hypocrisy deadens personal relationship, for it hangs like lead about society. The shades of the hypocrites carrying the enormous weight of their cloaks tread upon a miserable soul crucified with three stakes into the ground. <coughs> we are viewing the punishment of Caiaphas after death. Allegorically, it is possible that Dante read into this image the suffering of the Jews after the Diaspora. Morally, though, it is the image of the man who portrays his own inner truth for expediency. Anagogically, Caiaphas represents the gravity of hypocrisy and how it separates us from what deep down we know to be true. <clears throat> the conscience here haunts and gnaws away at the soul, crucifying it, staking down the selfhood, making it immobile, causing separation from God, who may be only known as wrath in a void of damning judgment. Cantos 24 and 25 are given over to the seventh Malibolgi, that of the thieves. Here Dante stands in the biblical tradition that teaches that our belongings are an extension of ourselves. Belongings in this sense are a trust and may not be abused. 
when we visit friends, we understand more of their inner life by the objects with which they surround themselves. Belongings seen in this way are rather like icons, that is, they are like mirrors reflecting something of the private world of the owner. The belongings of a friend helps us to enter into dialogue with him. The conversation quickly becomes I, thou. Take, for example, the pictures on the wall, the books on the shelves, the music played, also the furniture and memorabilia are part of a quality, a fragrance of the person's inner life and the values that they stand for. I'm thinking of gardens in particular, how gardens tell us much about the gardener. This said, then it is no surprise to find that for Dante, thieves are scum. They are reptilian because they are subtle, secretive, creeping to make their strike unnoticed. Now in hell, since they stole all the men's goods in life, they are deprived of their very semblance, both their bodies and personalities. Dante's descriptions are horrific. Obscene reptilian monstrosities devour them. Maybe the vile forms are the fiends that once inhabited their minds and souls in this life. The evil spirits now will not let them go. They change shape with each other as transformation after transformation takes place before the poets. All is fluid, never stable. This is Dante at his most horrific, showing how the imagination may lure itself into hell. But remember, it may also raise itself as the servant of the noose, the fine point of the soul, to the heavens. Canto 26 is another famous episode on Dante's way through hell. Perhaps at first puzzling, but once understood, profound. The co good companions have reached the eighth Maliborge, that of the counsellors of fraud, Dante peers down from the rocky bridge and sees a strange sight. Wandering flames of fire, which from a distance remind him of fireflies flickering in a valley. One particular cluster of fire intrigues him, and he asks Virgil who is tormented within. He learns that the flames hold two Greek heroes, Ulysses and Diomedes. The wooden horse that the Greeks left for the Trojans to drag into their city and to their destruction, for Dante was an act of fraud. They had not left an offering, but a trap. Dante addresses Ulysses, who liked the suicides has lost the form of his body, for the answer comes from flickering flames. It's a curious tale that is told, not the one we know of Ulysses returning to the Isle of Ithaca and his reunion with his beloved Penelope. Ulysses is portrayed here as a restless soul who left his wife and family duties in a vain attempt to experience the world and so prove himself 
prove to himself all human vice and worth. With his crew, he sailed beyond the Straits of Gibraltar and on to the southern hemisphere. Perhaps this enterprise was suggested to the poet by the first explorers in the West who set out to discover a passage to India. Be that as it may, the tale clearly stands for something more in Dante's mind. Ulysses relates how he urged his crew onwards on their voyage of exploration. Lines 118 to 120. Think of your breed, for brutish ignorance your metal was not made. You were made men to follow after knowledge and excellence. The frail little ship sails south, encountering increasingly rough seas. Eventually they see in the distance a high mountain. The weather worsens and soon their bark flounders. We know that the mountain scene was Mount Purgatory, but the significance of the mount was unknown to the drowning man. Men. What is Dante telling us in this tale? He is emphasising that duty to one's loved ones is of paramount importance and that a vain squandering of energy in pursuit of worldly fame is a nonsense, indeed a fraudulent enterprise. Furthermore, most important, to seek beyond certain frontiers of knowledge is misguided and wrong. Above all, to counsel others into such pursuits is wrong, very wrong. Furthermore, in the context of today, perhaps Dante would teach that the arrogant soul pursuits of science are wrong, for they attempt to penetrate mysteries best concealed from us. They are fraudulent. In all this, it is our arrogance that appeals to the weakness of others, and thus our arguments become subject to fraud. If we were to stop for just one moment and consider the situation which a situation we would know that our pursuit was wrong. To manipulate life as modern science wishes to do, for Dante would spell out the shipwreck of society, to explore space when we're not even responsible for our own environment, is likewise fraud on a grand scale. To play with matter so as to generate nuclear energy is a grand act of eventual self-destruction. In today's descent to the malabolgy of the councillors of fraud, may we ask who is in the flickering ball of flame coming to up towards us? Would Dante have placed Einstein as collaborators, caught within the heat of their own discovery? Know that Dante perceives that counsellors of fraud always promise new experience, knowledge and excellence. To counsel fraud is to let a fire engulf an individual, a family, a society, a nation, humanity at large. To counsel fraud is to deny our true self and become caught 
in our own illusion and lie. Then our lie becomes multiple lies, a game that ever increases until our house of cards eventually collapses. It is a condition brilliantly studied in Goldoni's play Il Bugiardo. The final denouement is when Lelio's lies have all been exposed. However, the audience leaves the auditorium knowing that even the humiliated Lelio will go on lying, for it is the only way in which he knows how to live and puff up his own esteem. The penultimate Malibolge is that of the sowers of discords, and Dante stresses three types. Those who cause religious schism, those who cause civil strife, and those who cause family disunion. The devils constantly dismember their bodies. The imagery is obvious. They who once divided others through discord are now continually broken up. Finally, there is the malibolgy of the falsifiers. It is a valley of disease and symbolizes society as we unfortunately know it. Here, Dorothy says, commentary is excellent. The alchemists, the puffers as they were known, signify every deceiver who tampers with basic commodities, the adulterators of food and drugs, jerry builders, manufacturers of shoddy goods, the compilers of fraudulent reports, and so on. Dorothy Sayers writes, For the allegory, there is at one level the image of the corrupt heart, which acknowledges no obligation to keep faith with its fellow men. To another, it is an image of a diseased society in the last stages of its mortal sickness. Every value it has is false. It alternates between a deathly lethargy and a raving insanity. Malibolges, the Malibolges began with the sale of sexual relationship and went on to the sale of church and state. Now the very money itself is corrupted. Every affirmation has become perjury and ever, ever identifies a lie. No medium of exchange remains and the general bond of love and nature's tie has been utterly dissolved. It is remarkable how throughout the Malibolgi one sin seems to slip into the next and all become in time incestually interrelated. Is this the kingdom of lies, the Kivitas Diaboli, and its Lord is the father of lies? <clears throat> Canto 31 What lies beneath this vile city? What we find is another of Dante's masterstrokes. There are no flames, no furnace, no fulcrum of white heat. Just snow and ice, intense cold, as may only be 
experience at the poles of the upper world. We are approaching the final well of nether hell, that of fraud complex. Just as the good companions needed fraud's cheap and poisonous image, that is Gurion, in order to send to the Balibolgi, so again they need the help of one of Hell's occupants. Standing around the well like sentinels are the giants who rebelled against Zeus and tried to storm Mount Olympus. They are the classical parallel to the rebellion of the angels when there was war in heaven. Dante mentions, mentions quite a number of the giants by name, Nimrod, Fialtes, Bireus, Antaeus, Typhon, Titius, to which we may add Prometheus, who stole the sacred fire, another image which today illustrates the folly of nuclear energy. These senseless creatures are all images of satanic pride, those blind forces which remain in the soul, in society, and which, if not rooted out, cause the rot of civilization. We have seen these energies with our own eyes in hooliganism, the violent stupidity of what some call to sport, the mass emotion that leads to genocide and holocaust, terrorism, the grasping at the sacred as if it was one's own. Such energies are all about us. For example, in senseless rage and sexual perversion. We hear them in the strings of oaths that may reach the ears Dante turns up with this phrase, Raphael Mayamek Sabialmi. It's nonsense, but they're, as it were, curses of, the de of one of the giants. The hellish noise that today masquerades as music, the media's debasement of communication. We observe them in mass emotion, the rape of women, the needless destruction of nature, of all things beautiful, the misuse of children, of unborn children, and so on. Dante is asking us to stop a while and to recognize how these images and tales of old diagnose our condition far better than do philosophers, sociologists, psychologists, and most certainly the would-be do-gooders. Why? Because the wisdom of old tells us first to put our own house in order, that we may not eschew responsibility and place it on the shoulders of others. We are responsible for ourselves. We must understand and censor, if necessary, the energies we would allow to enter and reside within us. Having understood this, then the giant Antaeus lifts the good companions up and down to the bottom of the well. Like Hercules, 
they have overcome and tamed Antius. They have figuratively lifted their minds from being earthbound and have recognized the senseless powers which inhabit, inhabit the abyss. Dante, from now on, becomes increasingly angry. He is filled with righteous indignation. Cantos 32 to 34. It is a long session today, but I want to get through hell. The frozen lake of Cocytus, that is the river of mourning, lay stretched before the poets. The noise and pandemonium of the upper circles has ceased. There is, a, there is silence except for the howling of the freezing wind. The devil is as cold as ice, not warm as fire. Lucifer may attract one through the illusion of warmth, but the supposed heat cunningly hides the deep chill of evil. Thus for Dante, evil in its fullness is cold, ice cold. If God is love, if we know God through love, if our Saviour was love incarnate, the Logos with us, if we are called to grow in love through grace upon grace, then to betray love is the worst sin of all. Held fast in the ice are traitors to their kindred, to their country, to their guests, to their lords. These circles are named respectably Caina, after Cain, Antenora, after Antenor of, Tro of Troy, who according to medieval tradition betrayed his city to the Greeks, Ptolemea, after Ptolemy, who invited the high priest of the temple and his sons to a banquet and then murdered them. you find that in 1 Maccabees chapter 16 and Judeca after Judas. Canto 33 is the one canto, other than Canto 5 of the Inferno, that all Italians know, or should know by heart. It is interesting to note the verses 1 to 78 with the first sustained translation from the Commedia in the English language. In 1719, Jonathan Richardson made a blank verse translation. It appealed to 18th century England. Its, its appeal to 18th century England has been suggested was due to the fact that it throws a cardinal into the lowest parts of hell. The episode <laughs> made a particular impression over the Romantics. For example, Fuseli and Blake being prime examples. Count Ugolino. Incidentally, um, Ugolino, that his remains were um, rediscovered um, while I was in Italy, and they had, um, you know, how they come from bones, reconstruct uh, what a person may have looked like. 
and all over the Italian newspapers when I was there was Ugolino, come back to life. <laughs> Count Ugolino and Cardinal Ruggeri are frozen into the ice up to their shoulders. Their tears merely freeze. Ugolino gnaws at Ruggeri's head in unforgiving hatred. La bocca sollevò dal fiero pasto. 33, line 1. The mouth of the sinner lifted from its savage feast are words known to every Italian school boy or girl. Ugolino lifts up his head to tell his tale of how he and his four sons were locked up in a tower by Cardinal Ruggeri of Pisa and left there to die of starva starvation. It is, it is a tale of betrayal and the inability to forgive. And just a footnote there, Dante speaks of four sons, but history relates that they were imprisoned with Ugolino, his two youngest sons, Gado and Ugocione, and his two grandsons, Nino and Anselmo. Anselmo was 15, and the other youths when this monstrous thing happened. Once again, I draw on Dorothy Sayers with her usual insight. They are the last of those pair of shades who imagine, who image, sorry, partnership in sin. In each case, only one of them speaks. Francesca speaks of sharing of the sharing of sin and offers excuses for Paolo along with herself. Ulysses ignores Diomedes. Partnership is lost. Ugolino justifies himself at Ruggero's expense. Treachery can share nothing but a mutual hatred. There is a deliberate parallel between the Paolo Francesca pair and the Ugolo, Ugolino and Ruggero pair. In both cases, the lines that introduce their respective stories are drawn from the same passage of Virgil. Uh, if you want me to go into that afterwards, I will do. And there are other minor correspondences. This is, why, this is Dante's way of indicating that here, in the ice of Cocytus, we have the last state of the corruption of love, that every devouring passion, sexual or otherwise, that sets itself against the order of God or the city, bears in itself seeds of treachery and a devouring passion of destruction. Commentators have criticised Dante for his total lack of compassion for the sufferings of the traitors. He yanks a tuft of hair from the pate of one traitor, Canto 32, 103 to 105. He refuses to help the eyes open of another, Canto 33, 148 to 150. But they have misunderstood the allegory. He is seeing the potential of the sin of betrayal, yawning wide within his own soul, like Luther throwing his inkpot at the devil. 
he is casting out the shadows from his own consciousness. Canto 34 We have reached the presence of Lucifer. He too is frozen in the ice at the earth's centre of gravity, rising from his waist upwards like a hideous giant. His once angelic wings now flap like windmill, sail, windmill sails and are the cause of the storm which rages throughout the abyss. La bufera infernal che mai non resta. What a marvellous symbol. The lightness of the angel's wings, once bearing angelic intelligence, from deity to mortality, is now leaden, the cause of the soul's laceration, engulfing itself and others in its storm, in its storm of evil passion. <coughs> At Passion Tide, in the West, we sing the hymn. The royal banners forward go, vexila regis pro duunt. Here at the lowest point all is inverted parody. The cantor's first line are vegila regis pro duunt inferni. And hell's banners are no more than the flapping of those wings which were once angelic. Here the souls the damned are walked over since they are frozen in the deep ice. Here Lucifer in his fallen state parodies the holy trinity like some hideous Tibetan deity. He has three faces. Each gnaws at a soul. Judas, Brutus, Cassius. Judas, who portrayed the Lord of Heaven incarnate, Brutus and Cassius, who represent treason against society, the life of the city. Charles Williams, who with Dorothy Sayers is our finest interpreter of Dante, writes, Dante can see it, that is Lucifer now, that which monotonously resents and repels that which despairs. Milton imagines Satan, but as an active Satan. This is beyond it. This is passive except for its longing. Shakespeare imagined treachery. This is treachery raised to an infinite cannibalism. Treachery gnaws treachery, and so inevitably. It is the imagination of freezing of every conception, an experience of which neither life nor death can know, and which is quite certain if it is willed. You will find that on Charles Williams, in Charles Williams' wonderful book, The Figure of Beatrice, on page 144. Dante has recognised the great worm that would devour us all. He has seen the worm within himself. He casts it out and places his, himself to the end of his days on Christ's side. 
He then climbs down Lucifer's frozen and shaggy flanks, aided by his faithful companion, the good of the intellect, the fine point of his soul. And as he does so, he turns over at the centre of gravity. His metanoia has been now been complete. It is a world he can never stray back to. Like Orpheus, it is behind him, and he must never look back to it. He is now, uh, excuse the word, converted in the fullest sense. Satan's realm is upside down uh, behind him and Virgil. They follow the trickle of a stream. It is all that remains of the river Lethe that has its origins in the garden of earthly innocence on the summit of Mount Purgatory. Lethe is the mythical river from which the souls about to descend into this world drink and so fall into forgetfulness, asleep of oblivion. The downwards flow of Lethe leads to no other than the selfhood, the ego, that which is within us, which would be fairest of all, Lucifer. The companions, the good companions, are now moving against its flow, towards recollection, the remembering of the good. They are now gradually gradually rediscovering the beauty of paradise. They follow the gathering momentum of the stream to climb out of the underworld, once to see more to see the light of the stars, the divine archetypes filling the heavens, which for origin were the logikoi, or for St. Maximus the Confessor, the logoi, equindi ushimu, Arrivederci le stelle. And so we came out to see once more the light of the stars. <coughs>